My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Roseberry here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, July 26, 2011. All right, so my laryngitis turned into a full-blown head cold. <laughs> I was feeling great yesterday, and today I feel the exact opposite. Unbelievable. So the moral of the story, by the way, is uh, if you're going to visit Todd Friel's uh, studio, make sure to pick up a lot of hand sanitizer. See, I forgot to do that, and now I got a cold. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result of it, we've got to do the uh, the cleanup work. Eh? To see if uh, what that what these folks are saying really, really, truly squares with Scripture or not. And uh, it's it's politically incorrect. We step on toes. We uh, well, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth sometimes after this after doing fighting for the faith. But uh, let me tell you what we're gonna do today. Um, I, as you can tell, I'm congested. I have a cold. Uh, yesterday's uh, scratchy throat that was uh, laryngitis-like has uh, given way to a full-blown head cold, and so what I'm gonna do today, and I'm gonna give my uh, I'm gonna give my voice a little bit of a rest. And I'm going to do our light edition for the week with the prayer that tomorrow um, I will be in a, a, a better mental space and not, not sitting in the decongestant fog that I'm in at the moment. And so what we're going to be doing today is we're going to launch into a multi-week series that we're going to uh, begin today uh, listening to the apologetic lectures of uh, Pastor Charles St. Ange, of uh, Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas. Um, I, I had the uh, privilege 
of uh, meeting Pastor Saint Ange when I was at the Higher Things Conference, and I sat on I sat in on the lecture that he gave regarding whether or not the New Testament documents are historically reliable, and was thoroughly impressed with the fact that this guy is uh, he dots his eyes and crosses his T's in his theological and apologetical research, and come to find out that he's actually been uh, been teaching a a, a long multi week uh, series on apologetics at the uh, at the adult Sunday school class there at the Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas. Now, don't tell Pastor St. Ange I said this, but he looks a lot like um, uh, 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 Ewan McGregor from uh, the Star Wars movie. He, he, he looks like Obi-Wan Kenobi. So I, I, as you're listening to today's lectures, we're going to play two of them today. Uh, uh, the, the first one is entitled Why Apologetics? And then we're going to take a break. And after we take a break, we're going to come back and we're going to listen to his lecture on Was Jesus a Real or Historical Person? Both of them are fantastic top drawer apologetic lectures and uh, well worth passing along to you. And But while you're listening to them, don't tell them I said this, Bo. Though, but uh, y- y- if you want to get a feel for what who's teaching you, just imagine Obi Wan Kenobi without the mullet uh, teaching you, and uh, you'll <laughs> you'll get the idea of what's going on. I, I I need to stop taking decongestants; they make me say stupid things. Anyway, so without any further ado, here is uh, Pastor Charles Saint Ange in his lecture entitled "Why Apologetics." I've called the topic of what we're going to go through over the next nine weeks, prepared to make a defense. Um, Apologetics is the study of um, defending the Christian faith through the use mostly of reason. Applying our reason to um, the, the study of our religion and using it to share and buttress um, the doctrines of our, of our religion with others. Apologetics usually um, is a response to something that is being said. So, for example, um, those of you who are familiar with the Lutheran faith know that our church has a book, a set of of, of, uh, literature called the Book of Concord, which is a set of documents which outline the Lutheran faith. Um, It includes the small catechism, the large catechism, um, the three ecumenical creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, Uh, and the Apostles' Creed. It also has the Augsburg Confession and something called the Apology to the Augsburg Confession. After the Augsburg Confession was presented in 1530 to the Holy Roman Emperor, um, Roman Catholic theologians responded to it and said, "Uh, nice try, um, but but here's our disagreement with what you've written. In response to that, Philip Melanchthon, uh, Luther's right-hand man, or Luther was Philip Melanchthon's left-hand man, depending on your perspective, wrote what was called the Apology, the defense of the Augsburg Confession, where one by one he went through the things that the Roman Catholic theologians wrote and said, here is why we still disagree with you, even after you have attempted to respond to what we've said. What we're going to do today is respond to some of the common objections to Christianity that are raised in our culture. The 21st century, mostly in the West, so we're going to restrict ourselves to that sort of framework. Before I begin, I would like to, uh, to ask a word of prayer that the Lord would first of all preserve my voice. Um, about two or three days ago, I started to lose my voice, um, and so I'm, I'm praying that it, I'm somehow going to be able to make it through here and still preach the sermon at the late service. Gracious Heavenly Father, 
you have revealed yourself in history. You chose to speak to a man named Abraham to call him out of Iraq to go to the promised land and made great promises to him. You chose Moses to liberate uh, a people that had been enslaved in Egypt, the descendants of Abraham, and to bring them out of Egypt to the Red Sea. You chose David to rule over a real nation in the Middle East and through David to reveal yourself to the nations. And most importantly, Heavenly Father, you chose to send your Messiah, yourself, your own son, in flesh and blood, Jesus of Nazareth, to reveal yourself to us, to deliver us from sin, death, and the devil, and to rise again from the dead, not metaphorically or spiritually, but in a real way that your disciples could tangibly see. We ask, therefore, Heavenly Father, that you might prepare each and every one of us to give a defense for the hope that we have within us to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why do we need to bother with this sort of thing? Well, uh, I think there is a good verse in 1 Peter that talks about the reason for being prepared to make a defense. Peter, the chief apostle, who's given the keys, tells his people to whom he writes, to, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you yet to do it with gentleness and respect. This is the life of the Christian out in the world as we engage with non-Christians. First of all, we want to be prepared to make a defense because we want to honor Christ as Lord. Isn't this what Christians do? Right? The definition of a Christian is somebody who honors Christ as the Lord. And so by learning about the reasons for the hope that we have within us, we are showing ourselves forth as Christians. We're showing that we are people that believe that Jesus is worth more time and energy than anything else in this world, even more than football, or basketball, or mathematics. Uh, hockey. <laughs> well, even hockey. Even hockey. That's number one reason. Number two. We do this to enable us to give a reason to others for the hope that we have. Somebody comes up to us, comes up to us and says, why are you a Christian? Can you give them an answer? I've talked before, uh, I think with the Lutheran Women Missionary League women, about what's called the elevator speech in nonprofit organizations. They really stress this. Can you, if you're with somebody in an elevator, you know how much time you have with somebody in an elevator, not a lot of time. And if they were to ask you, um, you know, well, what do you do for a living? And you were to say, well, I work for, and this was the organization that I was a part of, Liberty Lutheran Services. And they then respond, well, what is Liberty Lutheran Services? Can you, in 30 seconds or less, explain to them what your organization's all about? What you do? Why you exist? Same should go for Christianity. Can you, in 30 seconds or less, tell somebody, why are you a Christian? Um, and give a defense for it. So those, those are two reasons. Apologetics is a vaccine. This is something I think we don't talk about enough. When we, people give apologetics workshops, they often do it, as I've just said, so that you guys can go out and give a defense for the reason why you're a Christian. I think in our world, we need this sort of knowledge as Christians to buttress our own faith. Because we are constantly being bombarded. If we really are out in the world, 
by things that are directly attacking our faith and indirectly attacking our faith. In fact, I would say that 90% of the uh, truth decay that happens to us as Christians happens indirectly without our even realizing it. We're going to talk about that today. What happens if we don't worry about apologetics? And if we don't worry about teaching our children reasons for the faith we have within us? Well, uh, there is a, a man by the name of Ken Ham, who is uh, an Australian, who came to the United States to teach apologetics um, because he said, this, this is where Christianity will stand or fall. It's falling already in Europe. It's falling in Australia. It is falling in Canada. The United States still has a strong Christian community. Now, you guys might think, oh my goodness, you know, the United States is barely Christian anymore. Um, anybody who comes from anywhere else in the world will tell you, especially the first world. I'm not talking about the third world where Christianity is strong. But in the first world, we'll tell you this is still a country with a strong Christian undercurrent. However, Ken Ham came here and, and did some studies and realized that there was something really distressing happening within Christian churches. And when, Chris, when he says Christian, he means Christian churches who confess that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, who confess that Jesus Christ is both God and man, that he died on the cross for the sins of the world. We are not talking about the Christian churches like the one I'm going to talk about later, the one I grew up in, that, that by this time isn't really sure what it believes. We're talking about the churches that have a clear confession of faith. In those churches, this is what he found out. Only 11% of those who have left those churches did so during their college years. 90% of the ones who left the church were lost in middle school and high school. By the time they got to college, they were already gone. About 40% are leaving the church during elementary and middle school years. What does that mean? What does it mean by leaving the church? No. They're still coming, because who's making them come? Their parents. They come with their parents, right? Their parents say, it's Sunday morning, let's get up, 7.30 in the morning, or you know, 9.30 in the morning, you know, get your church clothes on, and you do, you put your tie on your clothes, and you go through the motions. You sit in the Sunday school class, you sit through the worship service, you go home, and then you go to school on Monday morning, and really, you don't really believe any of it. But your parents are making you go. And then it's a big surprise when they go off to college and mom and dad call up and say, well, have you found a church to go to? Are you going to the campus ministry? Yeah, well, maybe next week, you know, I'll think about it. And we think, when? But then, like, in two weeks, college has already destroyed their faith. <laughs> Sadly, they've lost it a long time ago. Most people assume that elementary and middle school is a fairly neutral environment where children toe the line and follow in the footsteps of their parents' spirituality. Not so. I believe, these are Ken Ham's words, that over half of these kids were lost before we got them into high school, before they showed up in my Bible class. Whatever diseases are fueling the epidemic of losing our young people, they are infecting our students much, much earlier than most assumed. And in fact, Ken Ham discovered this in his studies. Children who attended Bible-believing churches and their Sunday schools were more likely to leave the church than students who only attended church 
and never went to Sunday school. Now that was the shocker. What is happening in those Sunday schools that is causing them to be more likely to lead the church? Ken Ham spends a lot of his time in this book trying to figure that out. And I think he and I are on the same wavelength. And when, when I read it, I sort of had an idea in my mind. And I think he sort of came up with the same idea. And it's this. In our Sunday school classes, we do a pretty good job of teaching the Bible stories. You learn about the wonderful story of Abraham and how he's called out of Iraq to go to, the Pal to, go to Palestine. And you hear the story of Moses in the bulrushes. And you hear the story of the crossing of the Red Sea and the story of King David and the story of Isaiah, maybe. But they're just these disconnected stories. It's like the fairy book book that we read our kids at night. Tonight, we're going to read about Snow White. Tomorrow, we'll read the story of Rapunzel. The story next week, we'll read the story of Sleeping Beauty. They're these very interesting stories. But then our kids go to school, and they're taught Greek history, and Roman history, and Egyptian history. If they go to a good classical school, they're going to be taught how all these things connect up with these stories they're hearing in Sunday school. But for the most part, they don't. They're disconnected. And they never get the chance to ask their teachers the real questions they have about these stories. Like, seriously, two million people crossed a Red Sea, water on both sides, into the Promised Land. This man Jesus really rose from the dead. See, because my friends in school are telling me all this other stuff. And then I come to Sunday school, and I don't often get the chance to ask, what about these things my friends are saying? That's what these nine weeks are all about. Now, um, even if you're not in school anymore, and you're maybe not hearing these things because you work for some Christian organization where everybody is Bible-believing and everybody talks about Jesus all the time, um, we have leaders in our culture that without maybe even teaching you atheism, are allowing it to form everything that is around you. The movies you watch, the television shows, the books you read. Um, and so I put together a little clip of some of the things that we're getting bombarded with, the people that lead our culture. there is no God or Yahweh in your case any more than I can prove there is no Isis, Zeus, Apollo, Brahma, Ganesha, Mithras, Allah or for that matter the flying spaghetti monster. I'm an atheist with respect to the Judeo-Christian God because there is not a shred of evidence in favor of the Judeo-Christian God. My mum only lied to me about one thing um, she uh, she said there was a God and um <laughs> but that's because when you're a working class mum, Jesus is like an unpaid babysitter. Now, there is, on the historicity point, there, is, uh, only, there are only two reasons, I think, to, to suppose that there may have been the figure of some kind of deluded rabbi uh, present at that time. The first is the fakery of the story. Religion. I mean, it's just fantasy, basically. It's completely empty of any explanatory content. And it's evil as well. Half the people in this country think that 
drugs is what you have to regulate to make us safer and half the people think guns that's what you got to regulate to make us safer but i always think if you're going to regulate one thing that has the most potential to cause death and destruction religion you got to start with religion and if you are a christian you are about to begin a fascinating journey in the next 10 minutes it will become clear to you that your belief in god is delusional the problem is that your delusion, combined with the delusion of billions of other religious people like you, is hurting us as a species. It does not matter if you are a fundamentalist Christian, a moderate Christian, or a casual Christian. Your delusion is hurting us. Having watched all of that, I mean, you can have several possible responses, okay, to these cultural leaders and the message that they are sending out there into the world. One is to ignore it, okay, this is kind of a fortress Christianity idea. We are going to build Christian schools, Christian colleges, Christian universities, Christian businesses, Christian everything so that you never, ever, ever, ever have to hear any of this from anybody. Um, there is a community that has tried over the last few centuries to do exactly this um, and have, have found that it generally has not worked. Anybody know what that community is? The Amish. Yeah. Uh, Old Order Mennonites and the Amish. Uh, we are going to separate ourselves out from the world. Two problems with that. Number one is it doesn't work. You just can't do it. But what's the number, what's the number two problem with that? The Great Commission. Yeah, the Great Commission. Um, which, if you want to translate it literally, is Jesus saying, while you are going out into the world. It's not an imperative, it's a participle. And I think the best way to translate it is a participle of circumstance. While you are going out into the world, make disciples of all nations by means of baptizing and teaching them all things whatsoever I have given over to you. How do you do that if you're never going out into the world? So that's a problem. The other approach is to emotionalize. And this is the major approach being taken by modern Christianity in the United States. You ask the average American Christian, what hope do they have? What reason do they have for the hope is within them? They will say, Jesus is in my heart and he makes me feel better. Now, that might seem like a bold move because who can possibly argue with the way you feel, right? I, I can't go up to Grant and say, you don't feel good. Who am I to say that? Grant feels the way Grant feels. I can't question that. And so a lot of Christian churches have, have retreated into this idea that the way to um, make Christianity bulletproof from the world is to make it all about emotion. And it's all about how I feel about things. It's like, well, G Jesus makes me feel wonderful. And he'll probably make you feel wonderful, too, if you accept him as your personal savior. And so evangelism is all about sharing the good feeling about Jesus. Um, the problem with that is it, it pretty much undermines Christianity's uniqueness in the world. I learned this firsthand when I was in college and I had emotionalized faith. When I tried to share my faith with, with uh, a girl I was very close to who was an agnostic from a Jewish background. 
said, but if, if you believe in Jesus or you believe in God, we never got to Jesus. Do you believe in God? He'll make you feel better. And she says, but I feel great. <laughs> and who am I to question that? She says she feels great. She feels great. I, I mean, I can't come on and say, no, you don't. Um, the third approach is, to just, is, is the approach that is sort of number one, but more arrogant. Which is we stay in our Christian churches, and we stay in our Christian schools, and we stay in our Christian universities, and we congratulate ourselves by how smart we are and how stupid atheists are. They're just dumb. You know, they went off to Oxford and Cambridge and studied all these books and read all these things, got all these advanced degrees, and now they're stupid. <laughs> Not like us, boy, we're Christian. We're smart. Smarter than them. Now, that might sound great, except that what that does is it builds you up with such a high arrogance that somebody, generally a teenager, goes off to college, and what happens? They've never really encountered one of these atheists who they've been told all their life are just stupid. And now they try and discuss Christianity with them, and what do they discover? They're not, they're not as stupid as they thought. Um, they've got some really good arguments. And instead of being prepared for that, they, they just get hit with this shockwave. Of, I've been told all my life that they, they're not Christian because they're stupid. And now what do I do when I discover that they're not actually all that stupid? What's the fourth approach? Be prepared to give a reason for the hope you have. And the reason why we do that is because we will not retreat into emotionalism. Our faith is historical. The Apostles' Creed makes it historical. In the middle of that creed, there are two words that changes the whole concept of our religion out of being non-historical and into something that is in history. Dorothy Sayers, who was a Catholic apologist in England, had a friend who was an atheist. And she used to talk to him about the Christian faith and shared with him the Apostles' Creed. And the more he thought about it, the more he said, you know, I could accept the Apostles' Creed. I can accept all of it except for three words. Two of the words that I just mentioned plus one other. There are three words, all three of them together, that make it impossible for me to accept the Apostles' Creed. Now, you guys, you want to guess what those three words are? Nope. Under Pontius Pilate. In terms of the great myth of Christianity, the idea that it shapes our lives just like any of the old Greek myths do, hey, you can go along with that. Born of a virgin? Sure, lots of people claim to be born of a virgin in the Middle, Middle Eastern world. Rose again from the dead? Sure, that we have lots of gods who died and rose again from the dead. Uh, the myth of Isis and Osiris, the myth of Mithras, that we're going to talk about all these over the next few weeks. Um, it, we have no problem with that as a mythological construct that, that sort of shapes the, our understanding of the world. But the minute you throw in those three words, under Pontius Pilate, you make our faith historical, which on the one hand opens it for attack. Because if it's a myth or it's just emotion, it's safe. You can't attack a myth. A mythological structure, is, it, it's just out there, and it, it's, it's true for you, it might not be true for somebody else. But the minute you say this man, Jesus of Nazareth, lived under a very real Roman procurator in a very real piece of real estate in a real world, people can attack it. What's the flip side, though? If you can attack it, you can defend it. Exactly. All right.
discussion time. To give you an outline of what we're going to go through over those nine weeks so that you know how this is all going to fit together, we are going to start with Jesus. And, and you will see the logic behind this as we go along. So next week, we're going to talk about Jesus as a historical person. Um, then we're going to talk about the resurrection as a historical event and why Jesus as a historical person and the resurrection as historical event form the core of what I might call Lutheran apologetics, that we always start with Christ. And, there's, and, and, and like I said, I'm going to explore the reason for that. In our third week, we're going to talk about the New Testament as a, as a set of documents and why they are a reliable testimony to what actually happened from 33 AD and a little bit before through to the roughly 90s AD. Um, then we are going to get into um, science. We're going to talk about some of the critiques against faith that arise out of science. Uh, critiques with regard to origins, critiques with regard to physics, um, and, and lastly, critique, we're going to talk about um, just our whole system of laws and morality and what we've come to um, accept as our standard of life in the West, how much of that flows out of the Christian roots of the West, and therefore how much of it might we expect to lose if we no longer have a theistic, at a minimum, basis for our laws and system of government, and how you guys... I think might find that the most fruitful line of argumentation with atheists and agnostics because I certainly have. When I've talked about um, having a just society, a society based on rule of law, and can you have that apart from um, the Old Testament and New Testament? And I'm going to argue, I, I hope persuasively, that actually you can't. Um, unless you, you do it by fits and starts, and by kind of unconsciously relying on natural law, which means it's not going to be pretty. Here's the point I do want to make, though, today in our opening kind of presentation, and that is that each of us in this room and each of us over at Macaroni Grill right now having brunch and at IHOP or, or out jogging and running or sitting at home watching TV has a worldview, has a set of presuppositions that... Um, allow us to get out of bed in the morning and go down and have breakfast and get dressed, maybe not in that order, <laughs> depends how you do it, and then get on the bus or get, on the get in the car and drive to work or go to school and get through your day. I mean, think about this. You guys, the alarm gets off in the morning. Why don't you just sit there in, uh, and hit the snooze button and say, what is the point? What is the point of all this? I mean, why bother getting up? Is it going to make any difference to the world? Most of you probably never go through that. You probably just hit the snooze button and say, it's time to get up. Maybe some of you do. Maybe some of you do wonder about it. If you don't wonder about it, it's because your worldview is sort of kicked in unconsciously. The reason for why you do these things. Um, the story that our media, and by that I mean the predominance of television shows, movies, and books, and magazines run on is this. We came from nowhere as human beings. We are going no place. There's no end goal. And that God, if he is not non-existent, is basically a non-factor in life. 
Now that story is not literally told. It's not like you turn on the television and you know somebody stands up there and says, um, "You've come from nowhere. You're going no place. There is no God, and there's no purpose for you being here." And now we return you to a regularly scheduled sitcom. I mean, that's not the way it works. <laughs> but think about the television shows that you guys watch. How often do people ever pray? When do they go to church? I always think of, for example, my wife and I used to watch ER. And the thing that drove me absolutely nuts about ER is you have these patients in life or death situations, and there is not a chaplain to be seen. And I know for a fact that still, even to this day, every hospital has a chaplain. They have chaplains on duty, and the doctors do call on those chaplains to come down and to help them sort out these ethical questions. And on television, you'll never see it. You'll never see a chaplain show up. Um, when do people ever go to see their priest? You only ever see a priest on television if they're corrupt. I mean, for a while, Law and Order was like the chief anti-Christian television show on TV because the only time you ever saw religious people is if they were occult manipulating others into committing crimes. It's the only time you ever saw them. There were never any Christians. So it's never consciously communicated, this story. But it underlies everything that's getting made. Um, it underlies the books you read, the movies you watch, the music you hear, and it underlies the stories that we tell others and that they tell us. It's why it's so difficult to talk about our faith. Why do we as a church have to keep having evangelism workshops and let's bring people together and tell them how to tell people about Jesus? hundred years ago, this was as natural as talking about the weather. You just did it. But it's been excluded from conversation. So it's incredibly difficult to bring up the subject of God because it's like, oh my gosh, we're going to talk about God. And if you remember the video that you just watched, you've got to understand that for the most part, the atheists and agnostics that I engage with are no longer neutral when it comes to religion. It's not like, I don't want to believe in God, but you do, and that's all okay. Religion is now a threat to the world. They really believe this. Um, and this has happened in part because of 9-11. Um, that, that, um, and and I, I find this very distressing, but there's nothing you can do about it. Remember what Peter said, to give a reason for the hope that you have within you with gentleness and respect. You simply have to understand that these are people who are under the sway of the prince and principalities of this world. It's not their own fault. It is, but it isn't. That They're deluded. And so you can't get angry with them that they don't understand that Christianity and Islam are not the same thing. Because what, what they saw happen when the Twin Towers came down is that religion is at fault. They look around them and see the predominant religion in the United States is Christianity, and therefore Christianity has to go. Because until we get rid of religion, the world will never be a safe place again. All right, And we just have to understand that they do not see a distinction between Christianity and Islam. As far as they're concerned, it's two sides of the same coin. Because we believe in a God, and that belief in God motivates us to do things apart from what they see as common sense and reason. So, um, what, what do we do about this? Well, I want to talk a little bit about my own story. Um, I grew up in a what, what is now an incredibly liberal church denomination. Now, I don't remember I mean, everything I was taught as a three-year-old and four-year-old and five-year-old. I mean, then most people don't. My earliest memory of church was, however, sitting in the church nursery of St. Peter's Lutheran Church in downtown Ottawa, Canada, 
across from the National Archives and the Supreme Court, centrally located. Um, we used to have, we had a funeral for a cabinet minister in our church. It was a very, very prominent Lutheran church. As I grew up, though, it was obvious that there were a lot of pastors in our church who, when I was confronted with questions about whether Jesus was born of a virgin, whether he really performed miracles, whether the Bible was inerrant, and whether the world was really created in six days, their answer was, don't worry yourself about that. And maybe he wasn't. So what? We're still Christian because we want to be nice. I do remember as a fourth grader sitting in a sermon, listening to a sermon. Uh, Pastor Craig Knight was a great preacher. Everybody loved him because he preached without notes. And he was a great preacher in terms of rhetoric, in terms of style. And I remember him telling the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and how he had all these people sitting around. And, and Jesus took this one little boy's lunch, whom he, out of the generosity of his own heart, gave to the Lord. And he broke it and he blessed it. And the disciples took those five pieces of bread and the two fish. And as they started sharing it, the people just felt horrible. Here this boy gave up his entire lunch and they were hoarding the food that they brought. And so they started to share it with all the people around them. And, so, and eventually everybody was fed. Because Jesus showed them what it meant to be generous. I thought, Wow. So, like, I don't have to let that miracle be an obstacle in my faith. It, well, there wasn't a miracle, really. I mean, it was just a miracle of generosity. And so all my life, I was sort of taught that, you know, there weren't really any miracles, or we misunderstood all the miracles in the Bible. And before I knew it, I didn't really believe much of anything. <laughs> I, I believed that Jesus was, was the Lord. I believed that he rose from the dead. And this goes to what we're going to talk about the next two weeks, about why we start with Jesus and with the resurrection. But I'm not sure I really believed about, you know, any of this virgin birth stuff. Um, and then I met this woman who really did still believe all this stuff and believed that it was important. And we used to have long, engaged arguments over whether Jesus really was born of a virgin, over whether Jesus really did perform miracles and why that really was important. <laughs> <laughs> And thus ends my sermon on the role of women in the church. <laughs> and so when I eventually went off to ELCA seminary, um, I always say that I was not one of these conservatives who went into a very liberal seminary and, and just got indigestion after two classes and left. I was a liberal going to a liberal seminary who in my first few months there had everything that I had come to believe laid out in front of me Kind of like Luther at the Diet of Worms had all his books put in front of him on the table and said, do you recount, recant these works? Except I was being asked, do you accept these works? And where Luther said, I cannot recant, so help me God, I did the opposite. He said, I, I recant this. <laughs> I can't believe any of this stuff anymore and still be a Christian. And so I left. And here I am today. So... Part of how I came to be where I am is through apologetics, is through reading the arguments and the reasons that people gave for why they believed what they believed and realized that there are reasons for these things. It's not a blind faith. So I, I want to take over the next few weeks time to talk about our story. The fact that the Christian worldview has as much, and, and I would say more credibility, than all the other stories out there. 
The problem is if you tell a story often enough, it becomes the truth. And for most of you, you get to hear the Christian story. If you're not hearing it at home, two hours on Sunday morning. And the rest of the week is devoted to everybody else getting to tell their story. And so in two hours on Sunday morning, we're supposed to undo and retell all the story um, that you, you've heard during the week. Um, so I'd like you just to think about how of all the stories that you've heard, the movies you watch, the music you hear, created a story that conflicts with the Christian account of life, the universe, and everything. That's, that's really what I want you to think about. Like I was just telling the kids, I wanted to start us slowly today because I want us to kind of warm up to the whole idea of apologetics and where we're going. So now I want to kind of finish up by telling you where we're going to go. Um, I want to talk about, uh, over the next few weeks, first of all, the whole idea of religion just being about works and about morality or emotion. We're going to hear that as a theme throughout all of this, that Christianity is not about what's happening in me. It's about what God did in history for me. That is what we proclaim to the world. Um, we're going to talk next week about Jesus and all these different mythological figures. The way I'm going to kind of structure all of these is we're going to start out with the argument from the other side. We're going to have people telling us why they don't believe that Jesus is a historical figure. And we're going to even have, I have these little like animated skits between you know the Christian who has not been to apologetics class talking to the atheist about these very, very questions. Then we're going to come through and, and learn a little bit about the history so that at the end, we're going to hear how we might respond better to somebody who comes and says, well, how, how is Jesus any different from Alexander the Great or Isis or Zeus or the flying spaghetti monster, as Michael Shermer put it at the beginning? <laughs> we're going to talk uh, in, on May 15th about the Bible as a reliable revelation of God. We're going to talk about why people don't accept that, and then we're going to answer them. We're going to give, give them some answers for that. We're going to talk about evolution. Um, we're going to talk about um, the universe itself and, and what we've learned from theoretical physics, which actually I think is fascinating. Um, physics is great because it's math. You can't really guess things. Uh, and when you do, it looks really bad. Hey, let's invent, you know, 96% uh, of the universe is made out of stuff we can't see. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, at the end of June, we're going to talk about the idea of truth and morality and the rule of law and how fundamental to um, our whole system of governance is the idea that there is a lawgiver on whom we base our principles of law. And that if you get rid of the idea of a lawgiver and simply say the law is whatever we make it to be, you cannot preserve the same kind of system of government that we have. Um, and that's kind of a dangerous thought. Um, but it might give us some pause because that'll be the week leading up to 4th of July. So uh, we'll finish up with that. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, help us by your spirit to draw ever closer to Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, to help us to have confidence for the hope that we have within us, that we might be able to give to others around us reasons for our being Christian. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you might be with each of us this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Fantastic lecture. Okay, we're going to pause right here. We're going to pay some bills, and then when we come back, we're going to listen to a second apologetics lecture presented by...
uh, Dr. Uh, not Dr., but uh, Pastor Charles St. Ange again on uh, apologetics, and it's going to be uh, was Jesus a real person or a historical person? So you don't want to miss that. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Christian. We will be right back. It's like what not to wear for theology. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just... Angry, righteous, wrathful. The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is, too. Oh, wonderful. Your goddess is coming along beautifully. Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes. My goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, and good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Now for the final step. You have to name your goddess. Hmm. I think... I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god. Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. 
It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. back warning apologetics is absolutely necessary today if you don't know some of basic apologetics this is the place to get it need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us financially, and yes, this is truly a partnership, um, uh, by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. There's another one that says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And uh, there's perks to that, and that is is that uh, every time we publish a new ebook, and uh, we're hopefully just a couple weeks away from our next one, so I'll, I'll keep you posted on that one. But uh, every time we publish a new ebook, uh, you uh, as a crew member uh, get that ebook uh, to download that at no additional cost. So, and there's some ebooks that we only make available for crew members. Just want to let you know. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to. Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. You know, it is <clears throat> it is a pain uh, <laughs> trying to talk with, a, with you know, plugged up sinuses. This is just crazy. Anyway, uh, we're going to continue with um, uh, these apologetic lectures uh, because they're, 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 uh, each one is short enough to kind of play as its own segment. This next one, again, from uh, Pastor Charles St. Ange, who, who looks like Obi-Wan Kenobi, but don't tell him I said that. Um, and uh, this one's entitled, uh, Is Jesus a Real? And uh, by real, he means historical person. Here we go. Gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, you have chosen to reveal yourself in the world, in the world through your prophets and apostles, and then finally, in these last days, through the appearing of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask, Heavenly Father, that we might bind ourselves ever more closely to the eyewitness testimony of those who saw Jesus, that we might trust them and take them at their word, and that we might go out boldly into the world and confess Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, in whose name we pray. Amen. As I said last week, what we're going to do for the next few weeks is we're going to start out with the counter-argument which is what, why we're teaching this particular class each week. So this week we're looking at Jesus as a historical person, and one might ask, why are we bothering to talk about that at all? Well, here's why. If you were to go to the AmericanAtheist.org website, you will read this. 
Jesus is a myth, just like all the other saviors and gods of old. Just as little children grow up and learn the truth about the existence of the tooth fairy. Uh-oh, we have kids here. Do they know about the tooth fairy? The human race needs to mature and learn the truth about the existence of God. Now, there's a few leaps here, aren't there? <laughs> we start out talking about Jesus and we end up talking about God. Some of you might remember last week, um, the very end of the, the video clip that I showed was actually a clip that I took off of YouTube. Um, it's from a website called God Hates Amputees. Um, and it talked about how religious belief is destroying humanity. And it starts out by saying religion is bad for humanity and immediately makes the leap to Christianity. Now, what's the leap being made there? You have to think about this for a minute. It starts out religion is the problem and Christians are wrong. Well, religion is everything. Well, yeah, I mean, religion's pretty broad. Why pick out on Christianity in particular? I mean, why not say attack um, Native American spirituality? or uh, polytheism or Islam. I'm, not, I'm speaking rhetorically here. I'm not necessarily asking for an answer. I mean, there, there's a reason why they, they focus on Christianity, and it's sort of because we're the big kid on the block in America. Same thing's happening here. So the people in American atheists are not really thinking things through. They are, they are themselves soaked in a Christian culture where everything they know about religion is, is sort of mixed up with what they think they know about Christianity. Uh, here's another one, rationalrevolution.net. The best explanation for the story of, notice in quotes, Jesus Christ is what we call mythology. The case that I will be outlining here is that there never was any Jesus Christ nor any meaningful real-life basis for the story of Jesus Christ. Um, and one more from uh, Charles Templeton's Act of God, which was a very popular book back in the 70s. The church bases its claims mostly on the teachings of an obscure young Jew with messianic pretensions who, let's face it, didn't make much of an impression in his lifetime. There isn't a single word about him in secular history. Not a word. No mention of him by the Romans, not so much as a reference by Josephus. Yeah, we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, however, um, the point here is that th this is actually something fairly new. Only in the last, I would say, two or three decades can you find people blatantly, as on the American Atheist website and Rational Revolution, blatantly denying that there was ever a Jesus of Nazareth. Before that, there was a lot of critique over who Jesus of Nazareth might have been, um, what he might have uh, actually taught, what he might have actually said. People critiqued the Gospels and said they're kind of um, after-the-fact inventions applied to somebody who was nonetheless considered to be a real man, Jesus of Nazareth. In the last two decades, however, we now have this open questioning of whether there really was even a man behind the story. Um, this is in part because we have become an incredibly skeptical society, haven't we? Um, I blogged this week on the Houston Chronicle about the, the death of Osama bin Laden. And, and I kind of, in the middle of it, wasn't really the point that I was making, but I couldn't help but sort of do a detour on the way to my point um, of talking about, is he really dead? Um, and I joked, you know, unless I could put my finger in the bullet hole. <laughs> 
you know, and touch the body, I will never believe. Because um, last week happened to be, of course, the, the story of Doubting Thomas. But this is the society that we're in. Um, it's not that humanity has changed all that much. We've always been highly skeptical of things. Um, there's a study that came up four years ago uh, at a major Ivy League university studying Holocaust denial. People that deny that there was ever a plan put in place by the Nazis to execute Jews in a systematic sort of way. And that in the 2000s and even in the 90s, there was an explosion that is continued to this day of Holocaust deniers. More and more people that simply question that it ever happened. And if you try and present them with evidence, historical artifacts, Deb says, well, haven't they ever been to Auschwitz? And of course they have, but they don't believe any of it. And here we are again today. So the point is that we are not going to prove to people that there ever was a real Jesus of Nazareth. But I end with this Charles Templeton quote, because what we certainly can do is say there is as much proof that there was a Jesus of Nazareth as there was is proof for pretty much any first century important person. Now, if you want to throw out history and say it's impossible to do history, we can't know anything unless we see it with our eyes and touch it with our hands, okay, then you're going to have to throw out an awful lot more than just Jesus of Nazareth. You're going to have to throw out Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and, and all of the great Greek philosophers and most of the Caesars and, and most of the major figures of, of early European history as well. And you'll probably even doubt that there was ever a JFK. We can't help you with that. But what we can do is present the historical evidence. What I'd like to do, however, before we start, is to give, um, show you a little discussion between two people that we'll see uh, a few times in some of these presentations. I call them Joe and Jane Doe. Um, they get into a little discussion about Christianity, much as you might end up having a discussion about Christianity with one of your friends. However, they have not been to this class yet. Okay? So let's, let's see how their discussion goes. I heard that Wes Sexton started bombing Religiousville yesterday. How sad. It sure is. Wouldn't the world be more peaceful if there were no more religions in the world? How so? So many of these wars are started by people that believe in fairy tales. Take Christians, for example. They believe in Jesus and start wars over him, but there's no more proof that Jesus exists than that the Tooth Fairy or the Easter Bunny exists. Well, the Bible says Jesus exists. But the Bible was made up centuries after the events they claimed to report. If what the Bible said about Jesus was true, wouldn't other people who weren't Christians have also wrote about Jesus? Well, I suppose you're right. But as a Christian I believe that Jesus exists because he lives in my heart. Really? You're a Christian. So you believe that Jesus really existed? What about Isis? Or Mithras? Or Hercules and Zeus? Lots of people believed in them, but you don't believe they really existed, do you? I don't think about it. I've just always been a Christian, and it makes me feel better. But wouldn't it feel better to know the truth instead of a lie? Would you look at the time? I'm going to miss dinner. Have to go. Talk to you tomorrow. Okay, there are a few things that came up in our little discussion, okay, between Joe and Jane, right? Um, some of the comments that Jane threw out are comments that have been thrown back at me by atheists and agnostics. For example, 
um, Jesus and Mithras. How many of you have ever heard of Mithras? Okay, some of you have. Um, nobody ever talked about Mithras until the last like two decades when um, somebody wrote a paper comparing um, Mithras, who was a figure that was worshipped by the Roman soldiers. Uh, there was a whole cult that surrounded, uh, mil- it was a military cult surrounding this, this figure known as Mithras. And this person, I think it was about 15 years ago, wrote this paper talking about how Mithras and Jesus were almost identical. That they were both born of virgins, that they were both worshipped at their birth by shepherds, um, that they both performed miracles, that they both died for their followers to atone for their sins, and that they both rose from the dead. And since Mithras did this centuries, apparently, before Jesus, all the Christian gospel writers did was basically retell the story of Mithras, but instead of calling it Mithras, they called him Jesus of Nazareth, and started a new religion. Now, you guys are like, I've never heard of this before. Well, that's great. Um, you probably never had to actually you know, run into this sort of thing. If you're going to talk to atheists and agnostics, you will. Ones who are up on their game. Um, here's the truth about Mithras, in case anybody ever throws this up at you. And this is true generally of this whole, Jesus is just a myth like everybody else. But I'm using Mithras as a great example. Okay, So I, I've told you the story that... Um, Anybody at Easter gets told, you know, when we go up and we tell the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, they come and say, well, it's no different from Mithras. <clears throat> I started digging around to, well, where, where is this story of Mithras and where does it come from? And I ran across this essay that was written by this person who, who you know, wrote the story of Mithras. And I said, okay, what is their primary source? You guys know what the difference is between a secondary source and a primary source? Very important for all you young people. What's the difference between a secondary and a primary source? Secondary source is somebody writing about some other people writing about things. Okay, So you read a book about Martin Luther, and it's written by somebody who has read Martin Luther's writings and then written a book about it. A primary source would be actually reading the things that Martin Luther wrote. right? So instead of reading the book about the people, that you know, the book written by the the person who wrote, read the stuff about Martin Luther, you actually go and read the stuff written by Luther himself. So in the case of Mithras, I said, okay, this guy is writing stuff about stuff that he's read about Mithras. Where did he actually get his original information? And I came across this expert uh, who wrote this. Owing to the cult's secrecy, that's Mithras, we possess almost no literary evidence about the beliefs of Mithraism. The few texts that do refer to the cult come, and I, the not's a mistake, it says refer to the cult come from the early church fathers who mentioned Mithraism in order to attack it and from Platonic philosophers. What does this mean? It means we have no primary sources for Mithraism. What's our primary source for the life of Jesus Christ? The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Is there a Gospel of Mithras? No, none at all. In fact, the person that wrote this story about Mithras being born of a virgin, about him being worshipped by shepherds, about him dying for his followers and then rising again from the grave, do you know where he got that story? He found a carving in a temple wall 
and he interpreted that carving to teach these things. Now, I've actually went and looked at the carving, um, and most experts agree with me, or I agree with the experts. And when they looked at the carving, what they see is this figure of Mithras coming out from a rock that's been split in two as if he's being born out of the rock. That's where they get the idea of the virgin birth. You can see where if you see somebody climbing out of a rock, you immediately assume, oh, born of a virgin, right? <laughs> um, they also saw him later taking a bull, where he has his arm wrapped around a bull, and he's stabbing the bull through the neck. And that's where he got the idea that Mithras died to atone for the sins of his followers. Because you obviously, if you see a guy with his arm around a bull, stabbing it in the neck, you're thinking, oh, he's dying on the cross for the sins of his followers, right? And then at the end of the carving, there's a picture of Mithras being surrounded by the 12 different signs of the zodiac. And that's where this person wrote and said, oh, Mithras rose from the dead and he had 12 disciples. Now, I think that is what we call technically a stretch. <laughs> but what happens is you get a bunch of people out there who read this. They, automatically, they already do not like the story of Jesus. And so when you come across somebody who says, well, it's no different from the story of Mithras, you immediately sort of latch onto that and say, oh, great. Now I can go to my Christian friends and tell them how stupid they are, that they're worshiping somebody that's no different from Mithras. And that's where you as a good Christian, remember I talked about the four different responses to Christianity or to, to an attack on Christianity last week? You can get all emotional like this guy does and say, well, it doesn't matter what you say, Jesus lives in my heart. Or you can ignore them and say, I don't want to listen. Or you can say, well, you believe that because you're stupid. That's the third response, right? Well, what's the fourth? What does Peter ask us to do? Give a reason for the hope we have with gentleness and respect. And that means sometimes you have to go and do a little research and do like I do, which is to say, well, let me go and read up about Mithras and then I'll get back to you. And that's when I read up on Mithras and said, holy mackerel, where, where are you getting this stuff from? You will also hear that the story of Jesus is not all that different from the story of Isis and Osiris. Now, maybe you've heard of Isis and Osiris and Horus. Memorial Lutheran school kids have, right? Yeah, because you guys are in a classical education school. A Christian school, I might add, right? Okay, so while we're not allowed to teach religion in the public schools, we can teach mythology in our Christian classical school. <laughs> So while these four folks don't know anything about Jesus or Isis and Osiris, they're going to have to make up a lot of it. Our kids know both. So you're also going to hear, for example, the myth that Christian kids aren't exposed to anything. And we, we know that that's not true. You also know from having learned about Isis and Osiris and Horus, though, that it is, it is an ancient attempt to explain what, Roy? Do you remember? what the story of Isis and Osiris and Horus was told to explain. One of the things that it explained, put me on the spot, poor kid. Anybody remember? It has, always has to do with spring. And why, what happens in Egypt in the spring? Think, think of, yeah, think of what's happening in the poor Mississippi. The Nile floods, right? Overflows its banks, it floods all the fields, gives water, uh, create, creates fertile ground so that the crops can grow. Um, uh, one of the um, 
One writer that, that I read about uh, said that Plutarch, who is one of the ancient writers, identified Osiris as the Egyptian manifestation of the god the Greeks identified as Dionysus. So we're talking about a lot of an ancient sort of um, mythology. Um, but the story of Isis and Osiris is, is basically what's called an etymological tale. Now that's a big word, etymological. But what it means is it's a story that explains something, why something happens. And in this case, is why does the Nile flood every year? And here's the story that was told. Osiris was killed by his brother, chopped into 14 pieces, scattered throughout Egypt. The goddess Isis collected and reassembled his parts and brought him back to life. Unfortunately, she was only able to find 13 parts. <laughs> but this is part of the story of why the Nile floods, why spring rehappens to Egypt every year. Now, you can see how you would read that story and then listen to the account we just heard this morning, for those of you early church from Luke 24, about Jesus appearing to the disciples and say, well, clearly the same story, right? Um, there's a substantial difference. If, if you read mythology, you're not going to get anybody who's going to come along and say, you know, Osiris was my best friend. You know, I, I saw him die, and then I saw him come back to life. It's always a long time ago, you know, in a, in a time before there was anybody there to see any of these things. Nobody ever claimed to see Isis or Osiris. Nobody ever claimed that they knew who Horus's mother was. And, oh, yeah, she lived down the street and knew what his address was. That's true, Jesus, right? One of the big problems with Jesus in the Gospels is how many people say, we know where he's from. We know his hometown. We know who his mother is. You don't get that in, in mythology. And, as I said at the very beginning of class, when the, when the accounts are written in the Gospels and the book of Acts about Jesus' resurrection from the dead, you never, ever get, oh, the tomb is empty, we've seen Jesus, therefore we're all going to live forever. There is never sort of this, the disciples going, oh, it all makes sense now. Think of the two disciples walking to Emmaus, right? They're walking along, Jesus joins them, they don't know it's Jesus, and he's, you know, talking to them about what's, what's going on, everything, well, it's Jesus of Nazareth, he died on the cross, he was laid in the tomb. The women said that they saw him appear to them and the tomb was empty. D does this make any sort of impression on them? The big impression on them is that Jesus is dead, because that's what happens to dead people. They stay dead. No matter how many women come and tell you a tomb is empty and we've seen him alive. The disciples aren't walking along going, oh, the women came and said his tomb is empty and saw him alive, therefore we know we're going to live forever. They don't say that because they, have, they can't put it all together. With an etymological tale, you tell the story to make a point, right? This is why spring happens. I think I mentioned my, my, this in my Easter Vigil sermon. I said, you know, it's not like the women went to the tomb on Easter morning, saw the tomb was empty, Mary Magdalene meets Jesus and says, oh, it must be spring. <laughs> um, now, that's, I mean, I could go into a lot more detail, but I think the takeaway thing that you want to remember when you're talking your, to, to an atheist or agnostic who comes and says, Jesus is a myth, just like all these other myths, is that when you read those myths, nobody ever claims to be an eyewitness. You never have a real person actually interacting with Zeus or interacting with Cupid or Persephone or Isis and Osiris and Horus in the case of Egypt. Right? You never have like a group of people who run around saying they are eyewitnesses 
and, and we saw Zeus, you know, and he told us to give you this message. That is over and over and over again the message of the New Testament, is eyewitnesses go out and say, we've seen this man, we knew him before he died, we saw him die, we knew he was dead, and then we saw him alive again. Now, you remember the, the little quote there at the beginning about the fact that there's not, no testimony from the Romans or from Josephus or anybody else that there was ever a Jesus. Well, there's, there's some truth to that. Um, if you are looking for a birth certificate, <clears throat> and if there was a Jesus birther movement and said, until we can recover the Roman birth certificate for Jesus of Nazareth, we will not believe he ever existed. Well, then, you know, uh, nothing's going to be good enough for you. Um, because, frankly, we do not have Julius Caesar's birth certificate. We don't have Tiberius's birth certificate. We don't have any of their birth certificates. I asked somebody once, they got really angry at me. I said, do we have, like, any statistical records for those Caesars at all? How am I supposed to believe they ever existed? Just on somebody else's say-so? Somebody else, later after the fact, writes about Pompeii, and we're just supposed to believe them, that he was a real general, that he actually really conquered Palestine, if there really is such a place. <laughs> I mean, there is a limit to skepticism. You have to start asking yourself, is it possible to do history at all? Josephus um, was a Jew who um, kind of converted, uh, possibly to save his own skin, um, and became a Roman, and the Jews hated him ever after. Um, he became a historian uh, and actually did write down the history of the Jewish people in a book called The Antiquities, uh, where he kind of retells the whole story of the Old Testament and then goes right up to the present time, which would be right around the time that the last books of the New Testament are being written. Um, he was a Pharisee, just like Saul, uh, also a priest. He was in the priestly line. And he completed his works, like I said, right around the time that we think Revelation might have been written, or a little bit after, around 93 AD. So you're talking 60 years between Jesus' death and resurrection and the writing of the Antiquities. Josephus writes some fascinating things. For example, he writes this. High priest Ananias II, after Governor Festus' death, convened a meeting of the Sanhedrin and brought before them a man named James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, and certain others. He accused them of having transgressed the law and delivered them up to be stoned. Now, why is that kind of interesting? First of all, we have in Josephus a reference to Jesus, right? So Josephus assumes he's a real person, right? Um, also assumes that James had, or that Jesus had what? Brother. Brother named James. Do we read about James in the Bible? Yes, in the Acts of the Apostles. You can read Acts chapter 15, where there is the account of James and Peter holding a conference with Paul over how to deal with Gentile converts becoming Christians. We also know from tradition that James was stoned to death um, executed um, as, as a leader of the church in Jerusalem. Um, <clears throat> we also know from the book of Acts that there was uh, a, a high priest, Ananias. Um, now this is probably uh, come somebody who comes much later than Ananias I, who would be who? Who's Ananias I? What's he famous for? 
He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. He sees Jesus during the trial the night before he's betrayed, according to the Gospel of John. Jesus is brought before Ananias and then before Caiaphas, then before Pilate, and also before Herod. Not King Herod who executes the babies, but his, I think it's his grandson. We also have a highly controversial passage from Josephus. Highly controversial because it sounds very Christian. <laughs> and anything that would verify Christianity is automatically highly controversial. It just is. You can't get around that. Um, it's called the Testimonium Flavianum. Flavian, uh, Flavius is one of Josephus' other names. At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. And his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. Now remember, who is this Josephus guy? Is he a Christian? No. He's a Jew. Is he a historian? Is he counted amongst ancient church or ancient world historians as being fairly accurate and worth reading? Yes. Does he write about Jesus? Not in just one place, but two. He is a significant enough figure that he makes it into the antiquities. Now, um, there is another version of this text that is even more controversial than this one because Josephus kind of comes flat out and says that Jesus was the Messiah. Um, and so people always discounted this and said the whole thing was added at some later time. Um, however, in recent years, there was this version of the text that was discovered that was in Arabic. Um, that, I mean, every historian sort of has to admit now at this point, okay, at least we know Josephus wrote about Jesus. He, he believed that he was a historical person. Remember, this is what we're talking about. What, we're not talking about whether Jesus is the Son of God. We're not talking about whether he really died for the sins of the world, whether he you know, has ascended to the right hand of the Father. We're talking about whether there was a rabbi known as Jesus of Nazareth. Interestingly, when I was at Congregation Beth Yeshuan and, and Rabbi Morgan was talking to us, I asked him, I said, do conservative Jews believe that there really was a Jesus of Nazareth? And he said, well, yeah. He says, any competent historian is going to believe this. And I thought that was very fascinating. So, um, while we may disagree on whether or not he performed miracles, whether or not he rose from the dead, that's a separate issue we'll ta start talking about next week. There is even agreement between Christians and conservative Jews and really almost any competent historian that there really was a historical Jesus of Nazareth. Um, by the way, this is an aside. Does anybody know the name of Herod Antipas's niece? who danced before Herod and at whose command John the Baptist was beheaded? Salome. Salome? Why do you know that? <laughs> How do you know her name is Salome? Do you know it's not in the Bible? Never says what her name is. You know that because of Josephus. Because Josephus tells the story. Tells the story of John the Baptist being beheaded. In fact, Josephus is one of the major external references to the New Testament. Um, there is nothing in Josephus, it's written, that does not line up with the history 
as we have it in the book of Acts and in the Gospels. It all lines up, including names, places, people like Governor Festus, who is mentioned in the book of Acts as well. I didn't mention that. Now, is Josephus the only one? Remember, uh, uh, Templeton mentioned that there are no Roman historians who ever mentioned Jesus. Well, Tacitus um, writes a history of the Roman people right around, again, the same time as the church is kind of expanding throughout the Roman world. Um, now, again, there are some, a minority of scholars who dispute this reference. And I have had people, you're going to get this with, with uh, atheists and agnostics, when I quote this passage to them, will say, all Tacitus is doing is reciting the story that has been told to him about why there are Christians in Rome in 70 and 80 AD. Now, bear in mind, this is about 30, 40 years after the crucifixion resurrection. I always repeat back to them the argument, where there's smoke, there's fire. Um, you're saying that somewhere in the last 20 or 30 years, somebody invented a Jesus of Nazareth and invented a story about him, and it was a powerful enough story that it got from Jerusalem all the way to the capital of the Roman Empire and became a significant religious force. Really? Um, by the way, does anybody know, according to most historians, how many years you need to develop a legend surrounding a real person? Say, like Alexander the Great. How many years does it take, roughly, before you start having Paul Bunyan-like stories? Like, Alexander the Great was 15 feet tall, and he, he had a hammer like Thor's, and it shot lightning, and that sort of thing. Anybody know? How How long? We think longer now. Competent historians. Half that. 500. 500 years. How long between the death of Jesus and the spread of Christianity to Rome? 40 years. 30 to 40 years. You're, you're, you're nowhere near the ballpark. Here's what Tacitus says. Nero, anybody remember Emperor Nero? Big bad guy of Roman history. Um, Nero fastened the guilt of starting the fire of Rome, the blaze that burnt down most of Rome, and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty under the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Now, I might point out a couple things here. First of all, this is the second person in history that's mentioned whose name? Pontius Pilate. Now, you would think as a competent historian, while Tacitus may have been sucked in by the Christians to believe there was really a Jesus of Nazareth, it's hard to believe that he sucked them into making up the name of a Roman governor. One would think that he could have access to you know, the names of who the you know, 20 or so Roman governors are throughout the Roman Empire. Right? So there really was not only a Jesus, but also a Pontius Pilate. Um, and also an Emperor Tiberius, but we, we all sort of concede that there was an Emperor Tiberius. A most mischievous superstition, he goes on to write, thus checked for the moment, but not for long, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. <laughs> so if you guys think you hate Washington, 
Yes, question. My guess is yes, the Romans probably kept records of all the criminals and who was executed. The problem is we just don't have those records. We don't have the census forms anymore. I mean, the Roman, we know the Roman Empire was very meticulous in taking censuses. We don't have the forms. These things don't survive. We're going to talk about that in two weeks when we talk about the New Testament. People are going to question the New Testament. Is the New Testament a trustworthy document and accurate and reliable? People are going to throw up all these comments about well, there's so many different copies of it and they don't all agree and there's different, you know, some of them have different passages that aren't in the others, blah, 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 blah. We're going to talk about the fact that, you know, um, we only have two copies of Tacitus's annals of the Roman Empire. Two that date back far enough that we can consider them authentic. We have five thousand copies of the New Testament of a similar antiquity. So if you're a historian and you're going to accept Tacitus's annals as being, you know, well, we only have the two copies, but we're going to assume that's good enough to go on, you're going to assume you're going to do the same thing for another document that's even better attested. But that's the problem. We don't have those records. We don't have Julius Caesar's The superstition he's writing about is not that there was a Jesus of Nazareth as a historical person. He doesn't stand up and say, I can't prove that there was ever a Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, I haven't met anybody who's actually seen him. He doesn't go down that path. What is the mischievous superstition that he's talking about here? His resurrection from the dead. That's the mischievous superstition. By the way, what do you suppose he's talking about when he talks about the abominations practiced by the Christians? This is important when you're talking to your Baptist friends. Yeah, exactly. This was always the charge leveled against the Christians in the early years, for the first two centuries of its existence, that we're a bunch of cannibals. Because everybody heard that we did what? Ate the body and blood of our risen Lord. What does that tell you about what the early Christians believed about the Lord's Supper? Did they take it as symbolic? No. Or a memorial meal? No. In fact, that idea would not develop for 1,500 years of church history until the rise of the Enlightenment. And then people started to say, well, you know, there's some miracles that are just too hard to believe. Third person, Suetonius. He writes a book called The Lives of the Twelve Caesars. And he records the following as occurring under the Emperor Claudius. As the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he, Claudius, expelled the Jews from Rome. Now what's interesting here is um, Christus is assumed by most historians to be a misspelling of Christus because he's not a Christian. He doesn't necessarily get all the ins and outs. But he does not also distinguish between Christian and Jew. It's an internal Jewish argument at this point. In the early life of the Christian church, if you look at Acts, um, the early Christian church, it's an internal Jewish argument that's going on. The Jews who believe in Jesus and the ones who don't. And it's going to be a little bit later yet, after Suetonius, that you get the final split between Jews and Christians. So Claudius is not interested in the ins and outs of the religion. Neither was Pilate, by the way, right? He's like, you go and try them according to your own law. I don't want to get involved in this religious dispute. Um, Claudius just figures it's happening with the Jews. Get rid of the Jews. We've solved the problem. And that is assumed to be one of the reasons why Aquila and Priscilla, that you read about later in the New Testament, that become real helpers to Paul have to leave Rome. They are probably part of that Jewish expulsion where they end up going to Corinth 
um, where it's a little bit safer. We have another, another really fascinating little snip, snippet that I'm going to mention um, from a, a Christian writer by the name of Julius Africanus. And this is the problem with all ancient history. A lot of what we have from ancient history is quotes from other people that are quoting books that don't exist anymore. But he quotes a work written around the time of the early church by a person by the name of Thales. This is what he writes. On the whole world, at the time of Jesus and his death, there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thales, in his third book called The History, calls, as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. What's this event all about? Yeah. Well, we get in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. The great darkness that fell on the earth at Jesus' death. Matthew records the earthquake that happened, all the signs and wonders, that another historian apparently at one point wrote about it and said it was some kind of eclipse. He attempts to explain it as a natural phenomena. Why? Because isn't that what humans do? Atheists and agnostics today are not all that much different from people 2,000 years ago. We're always, you know, before we immediately make the jump. Atheists and agnostics think that our problem is we're part of this ancient, superstitious people that immediately make the jump for everything and blame God. It happened because of God. And that, you know, people 2,000 years ago, that's what they did. They always made the immediate leap and blamed God. They didn't. We know from history that most people, like look at Tacitus, you know, talking about all these superstitions floating around in Rome, they didn't make the immediate leap to say it was the gods. They were always looking for a natural explanation first. And, you know, you get a great darkness fall over the Mediterranean world, earthquakes all over the place. You're not immediately going to say, oh, God must have died. <laughs> we have other documents. I'm going to go through a few quick. Pliny the Younger. Um, he was a provincial governor of Pontus and Bithynia. You can read about those places in the book of Acts. Wrote to the emperor Trajan in 112 AD. We happen to have all of their letters preserved for us. This correspondence between Pliny and Trajan. I can't go through all of it. Um, but Pliny basically writes to the emperor and says, I got this problem. Got these groups meeting in my cities called Christians. And I don't know what to do about them. What was, by the way, the big problem with the Christians that the Romans had with them? Why were they so up in arms with the Christians? They didn't support the state religion. They distinguished very carefully between the God they worshipped and the God the Romans worshipped. And when all the city was supposed to come together and give a sacrifice to the state gods to preserve the state, the Christians wouldn't do it. And so the Christians earned the moniker, Atheists. <laughs> You will read in Roman history that the Christians are always referred to as atheists because they don't serve the gods. Um, so Pliny writes this. Okay, these Christians, they're in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day. What day would that be? It was Sunday. Before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as if to a god and bound themselves by a solemn oath. Why is that? I put this one little quote from Pliny in here because I think it's really important to make what point. This is written, by the way, just decades, if not years. First of all, they had liturgy. 
Yeah, antiphonal liturgy, just like you guys do with the introit, right? Pastor sings a verse, you guys sing a verse. This goes like 2,000 years back. Actually, it goes back to the Jews. We borrowed it, you know, from them. But who are they singing to? Christ, as if to what? A God. Which means within years, years of Jesus' death and resurrection, the Christian church was referring to Jesus as who? God. As God. So you're also going to get from atheists and agnostics the idea that, oh, you know, the first two centuries, nobody would have ever said that Jesus was a God. He never thought of himself as being the son of God. Nobody taught that. Nobody believed it. Well, all the way over in Turkey, they did. And they got it from somewhere. Um, little, one of the most ancient pieces of graffiti that's ever been found. What is it? Who wants to describe that for us? Katie, you got a good loud voice. Sarah, what is it? Uh, it looks to be a guy worshiping some sort of animal on a cross. Well, it's a naked donkey-headed man. It's another name for a donkey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the inscription is, Alexamenos worships his god. They're making fun of some Christian who's worshiping who? Christ crucified. Yeah. And why do they give him a donkey head? What a loser. I mean, don't you know criminals hang on crosses? I mean... This, the concept to a Roman who are all about victory, who are all about cool uniforms, who are all about the imperial eagle, you know, who are all about power and might and military conquest, that somebody would find a god worth worshipping and a man dying on a cross naked is just inconceivable, if I could use that word. Well, I don't think, they, I don't think they, they felt a need to make the Christians look stupid. I think, in their mind, they just were stupid. It just was stupid. Um, Where was that graffiti found? It was found in a Roman catacomb. Yeah. And uh, real conservative scholars think they can date it back to the first century AD. People who, again, are really opposed to the whole concept of Christianity date it to the second or third century. So it all depends on your bias how early you want to date it, or late you want to date it. So, what's the verdict? I, I think, at least as far as I'm convinced as a reasonable person, that I do not think you can put Jesus of Nazareth in the category of myth. He's not a mythological figure like Zeus or Osiris or Mithras. Um, he has historical footprints that Isis and Osiris don't. Nobody ever wrote a document saying, you know, Isis lived under the reign of Ptolemaeus III, Pharaoh of Egypt. Ever. It would have been inconceivable to say that. Because just he's outside of the realm of history. Zeus is outside of the realm of history. Jesus, from the very first, was in the realm of history. When you have creeds that say, under Pontius Pilate, which all of our creeds do, you have fixed Jesus within the real world, not some mythological world. Um, and Jesus is referenced within history. 
Now, as much as people would like, well, no, but you gotta think about this for a minute. I mean, yeah, Christianity, worldwide religion now, world's largest religion in terms of number of adherents, world's largest religion in terms of global scope. No other religion has the footprint, the geographic footprint of Christianity. No other religion does. But back then, it was just one guy and his 12 disciples. It's a small group of people. Um, and yeah, it, it didn't make a huge impact on Rome because Rome was way the heck over on, at that time, the other side of the world. And God did all that on purpose. If God had chosen a Caesar to be his incarnate son, it would have pretty much destroyed the Christian message. The whole concept of the suffering servant, the idea that God would choose to serve rather than lord it over everyone. How do you say that if you're Caesar? would have been very difficult. And by the way, how do you end up getting crucified if you're Caesar? Um, so no evidence is ever going to be enough to prove. That's not the point of this. This isn't that you're going to go to your atheist and agnostic friends and say, I can prove that Jesus was a historical figure. You can't do that. In fact, do you know that there are historians that question whether there was even ever a real Marco Polo? I got into an argument about that on a blog one time. I said, you know, and, and, they, and of course we can prove there was a real Marco Polo, blah, 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 and they present all this evidence. I said, that wasn't my point. My point is there are historians, and the History Channel did a whole special on them, because the History Channel is the home of all superstitions that remain unchecked, and <laughs> um, they, they had these historians on who said there was never a real Marco Polo, he's just a myth. You're always gonna get skeptics, Holocaust deniers. But the history's there. Or John Doe had finished this class and had a little bit more information. How might his conversation with Jane have gone? I heard that West Saxonston started bombing Religiousville yesterday. How sad. It sure is. Wouldn't the world be more peaceful if there were no more religions in the world? How so? So many of these wars are started by people that believe in fairy tales. Take Christians, for example. They believe in Jesus and start wars over him, but there's no more proof that Jesus exists than that the tooth fairy or the Easter bunny exists. Well, the Bible isn't the only record of Jesus' existence. Really? Who else thinks that there was a historical person named Jesus? Well. There's the Jewish historian Josephus who wrote about Jesus and about the death of Jesus' brother, James. That's true, but I've read that what he wrote was changed by later Christians. There is a version of Josephus' antiquities in Arabic that is considered completely undoctored, and the text gives the basic outline of Jesus' life as recorded in the New Testament. But there are other historians that wrote about Jesus and the early Christians, like Tacitus and Suetonius. It's just not true that Jesus is just a mythological figure. Hmm. But what about all the similarities between the story of Jesus and the story of Mithras? They were both born of virgins, both died for their followers and both rose from the dead. How do you explain that? Where is the story of Mithras recorded? Does he have a biography claimed to be written by eyewitnesses? I don't know. I guess so. I've never read it, though. Would it surprise you if I told you there are no written records of Mithras? That everything we know about him comes from interpreting carvings and cave walls? I did not know that. Look at the time. I don't want to be late for dinner.
See you tomorrow. All right. So there you have it. Great lectures, great uh, great content, good stuff. I hope that that is helpful to you. We're going to this will be uh, what we're going to do for our light edition of Fighting for the Faith for the next couple of weeks. So uh, we've got more of uh, uh, Pastor Charles St. Ange coming your way. So what'd you think? You know, I'd love to get your uh, feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.